thing about poetry podcasts is there just aren't very many good ones. Of course, if you go to Apple Podcasts and you plug in poetry, you're going to find a whole bunch of shows that are very earnest and very proper and say all the right things about what poetry is and does. And if you just listen to shows like that, you might end up feeling a little stifled, a little bit like maybe you're doing it wrong and everybody else got instructions that you didn't get. That's how I felt anyway. And then in 2016, a little bit after I'd started this show, I found this show called The Poetry Gods. And I basically decided that the three hosts, Aziza Barnes, Jose Olivares, and today's guest, John Sands, were my new best friends. They didn't know it, but they were, they were like the people that I hung out with for the year or so that I listened to this show. It was so different to everything else that was out there. Aziza and John and Jose used to just get uh, I, I feel like they just had one mic to begin with. I'm not really sure. But they would sit around in a lounge room in Brooklyn and just chat. They had a couple of recurring bits, what's on your mind, and unpopular opinions. They barely ever got to poetry, some episodes. They were just friends who really loved each other and happened to share this thing in common. And it was a joy to listen to. It was a real joy to listen to. And it was the first time, it's the first time that I'd ever heard poets sound like real people. They had a bunch of guests on the show over the, I think like 24-ish episodes that they ended up putting out. And some of those guests went on to be really big names, including uh, one of the hosts, Jose, who just got nominated this year for a National Book Award. So this show has always been on my mind. It's always stayed on my mind as like a a snapshot, a window into a little corner of American poetry that really felt alive. But then there came this point in somewhere in 2017 where the show just folded. It just went away. And I never really understood why. I was worried that maybe Jose and John and Aziza had had a huge fight or something. And I would go back to the feed periodically and think, I wonder if there's more poetry gods. But there never was. So when I got to Brooklyn this year and ended up reconnecting with R.A. Villanueva, I saw that he was reading alongside John Sands. And I thought, okay, what if, what if John would come and talk to me on my show? That would be pretty weird, but pretty cool. So I messaged Ron, Ron put me in touch with John Sands, and I ended up getting to interview one of the poetry gods. Now look, I know that the name is probably rubbing you the wrong way, Uh, you just have to know that it is absolutely a joke. These guys were, they were established, but they were still, um, they were still making their way in their scene, they were establishing this scene and this community, and They did not think of themselves as uh, any kind of authority. And that's what made it so charming. So I think, I think John was a little bit confused by me (laughs) to some degree. Like this is, uh, it's kind of a conversation I've been having in my mind for a number of years. Like all these questions I wanted to ask someone from this amazing show. And uh, I think he was a bit bemused. He was like, wow, you really are... um, you really are a fan, aren't you? But, you know, it's it's a lonely craft sometimes and having these guys in my pocket, it helped a lot. So yeah, I've gone on for far too long, but last thing I want to say before we get to the interview is, uh, yeah, I missed this show and I missed the, the kind of show this was. I know that Poetry Says is not this kind of show and it, it can't really be because it is just me, but when I finally found Slee Ricketts, I was like, oh, fuck. Finally, finally, somebody has stepped in to make a show about poetry that is actually fun and irreverent 
and savage and hilarious and and uh, I was happy again because <laughs> you know I got to do a lot of laundry and washing up so I need lots of podcasts that are actually fun to listen to and um, bonus if they're about poetry all right let's listen to John and I'll be back at the end with more follow-up and shout outs and various things Yeah, well, I'm really I'm glad to hear that it was just that life got in the way. You know, I, I spent, uh, periodically I'll go back to the feed and go, I wonder if, have I just missed something? Are they still making that show and, and I just missed it? Um, but you wrapped up in sort of mid-2017, I think it was. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah, 2017. Yeah. yeah. Well, like I was saying to you, as we were coming in, like in 2016, when I lived here, having the poetry gods felt like I had this access into this world of American poetry that I just would never have been able to get into on my own. You know, you guys were like my exceptionally cool Brooklyn poetry <laughs> friends. It really felt like you were at the epicenter of something. Mm. But I wonder if you felt like that at the time or if you were just like, I'm just hanging out with my mates and talking about poetry. Um, I think that we felt just like a real sense of joy being together. Yeah. And we were working together on a few different things. We were all... Uh, we did this like poetry pro this youth poetry program at Lincoln Center and so we were making curriculum for that. It was called Poet Link and we would all just like get up together at my place and um, just kind of like pool the weirdest possible ideas that we could for curriculum. So we were really trying to bring in like media that wasn't poetry to pair with poems. Like I remember we taught a contrapuntal workshop that used um, the original music video for T-Pain's Buy You a Drink, where he's like, um, you know, dressed in a lot of clothes and around a lot of like women who aren't dressed in a lot of clothes and he's got on like sunglasses. And then we kind of paired that with his Tiny Desk concert where he's like all stripped down and just like, uh, it's very much just like a, you know, piano and him, and it's so, like, kind of naked and vulnerable and just, like, how is this the same song and how does it change when on this side and then this side and kind of, like, tried to find poems that matched that in terms of, like, how the poem was set up. And I don't know, we were really just trying to, like, stretch the bounds of what an influence is. Mm-hmm. And I think in that process, we really, you know, we were already friends. Like, I, I knew Aziza as a youth poet, Jose I knew right when he moved to New York City and we were kind of just like you know crossing paths in a lot of different ways but that I think was like a time when we were just like spending concentrated time together then we ran the youth open mic at Urban Word NYC and we would perform there and we were just like coming up with wacky things and we just enjoyed spending time together and inevitably you know like when you are surrounded by people who love what you love the social and the creative kind of begin to blend so you're socializing, but you're also taking out this Terrence Hayes poem and <laughs> going down and just like trying to say like, hey, what happens here between line eight and nine? Like, how does he do it? And how could you talk about it? And so it, it felt very social. Mm. And I think, you know, also very intellectual, but intellectual was not our, you know, like growth was our, I think, at the forefront of each of our minds individually and creatively, but social was like the engine that drove that. We were really having a lot of fun. You were, you Um, were, you could hear that so clearly. I mean, three quarters of the show was just you guys chatting about stuff other than poetry. And that was, that was so freeing to me to hear because the only other poetry shows that were being made at the time were these incredibly serious like analytical like poetry off the shelf with Curtis Fox and you know like yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah just sort of and then to have the three of you who so clearly loved one another just sit and talk shit for like an hour and then occasionally eventually you would come around to the 
to a poem or something to do with poetry right. or not. But it was like, I don't know, I felt like I learned through listening to the three of you like that to be a poet I didn't have to be some kind of stuff shirt asshole. <laughs> I mean, it feels so obvious. It's, it does it feel feels so obvious. obvious and it, it still feels obvious and it felt obvious then and maybe that's like a marker of the scene that we were in. Mm. And the city that we're in, honestly, and just in terms of, like, the amount of heat and um, ambition and just, like, not in a bad way, but just, um, and people that Mm. populate this city where you feel like you're constantly being pushed in ways that I find mostly positive. Yeah. (laughs) Not that my mental state is always positive, but I think, like, by and large, if you're, like, trying to grow as a writer, it's good to in a scene and it's good to be in a scene with other people who are trying to push themselves and like Mm. so I think all of that was happening but it it also just feels so obvious to me when you read an amazing poem and you're just like holy shit like this is important and you know the craft is like endlessly fascinating and so you find other poets and you can talk about the craft in an endlessly fascinating way but the application to real life is there. Like, Mahogany L. Brown had a quote that I always remember where she was like, it's not therapy, but it's therapeutic. And I think it's <laughs> just, like, really well stated. It's hard to trace and be like, that poem helped my life in this yeah. tangible way. But you know when you read it, you're like, this is helping me. Like, I, I don't have a... Um, yeah. Like, a relationship to a holy book that... Um, feels like life guiding. I have admiration for those who do, but I think like the poetry bookshelf is as close as I get Mm. to it because it really wrestles with these large and existential ideas and roots it in the personal and gets it messy and just flips it over and you observe love and shame and power and all these things. and, And it just feels so applicable that I, uh, you don't know what to do with the the stuffy reputation that oftentimes feels well earned, depending on where you're looking. Yeah, it depends on where you're poetry. looking. Yeah, yeah. But again, if you're like into the craft, and I don't mind the stuffy stuff, but you know, my cousins, <laughs> my like friends who don't have an investment in the literature, they're not going to sift through all that to find these like building blocks of life. And so I do think that. I think of us, if you're invested, not us, the poetry guys, but like us as poets, like if you're invested in this art form, there's almost like an urge to feel private about it. Like you don't want to say you're a poet or you don't want to bring it up because it feels weird. Mm. But I think you're kind of an ambassador of the art form. And so you have to be a little bit of a filter and bring some of these things that feel really important into the spaces that you are and let poetry and what it, um, what it can do uh, to our, like, mind, to our brains, to our morals, to our, like, tenderness. Like, bring those things into, into spaces. And so, I, yeah, that was something that I don't even know that we were consciously trying to do. But we definitely felt like, let's record yeah. what us sitting together looks like. And there's not anything else like that right now. And there's not anybody talking to these people who we have as guests right now, and they should be because these people are superstars, right? Yeah, well, I definitely want to come to that. But before that, I want to come back to what you said about ambition and pushing each other. So that was this beautiful tension I felt like between the three of you was you really, really admired each other's work. and But you also, there was a maybe like insecurity is too big of a word but like there was a tension there because like you were at the start of your careers it felt like to me you know like it was sort of like it was all ahead of you and it was kind of this question of like what's going to happen and now it's like seven years later and I wonder how you think about that side of things I mean I don't think of that as the start of our careers but that's just I think the nature of any new project is you're like, this is something that's been happening, but this is finding people and they're finding out about any one of us for mm-hmm. the first time or this scene for the first time. And they're like, this must be the beginning. But that's like a continuation of 
scenes and scenes. Like, I moved to New York City in 2006, and um, not to, like, I think your question is still really valid. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's okay. It's fine. You know what I mean? But yeah. I, I just, like, it can feel like, wow, you guys sprouted out of nowhere, and you um, just, like, have all this natural knowledge of things but that's like by the time that we were starting the poetry guys I mean we were really each of us really avid readers and educators and talking about this stuff in in all different kinds of settings and it's just like that was a format that really felt like it could um synthesize all of that work into Mm. this thing but I guess the question is like, how's it going? <laughs> well, it's, I just, I mean, seven years is a long time and it's been a long uh, seven years. Yeah, yeah. And you are all, I imagine, in quite different places. I've kind of lost track of Aziza. I know Jose has just been nominated for the National Book Award. Yeah, yeah. He has an amazing book that just came out, Promises of Gold. Yeah. Like, what do you think when you look back at that seven year span? Besides, how the hell did we survive it? I mean, I, I gotta be honest, like, my career has been characterized by a series of collaborative exercises with other poets and, like, participating and building, you know, contributing to building community. So, um, the Poetry Gods was a really important part of that, but, uh, you know, I don't have a podcast right now, <laughs> which is, which, you know, It'd be nice. Um, <laughs> but like uh, during that time, 2016 was when we started Super Duper Fresh, which is this reading series in um, Brooklyn that I co-curate with Mahogany, L. Brown, and Jive Poetic, and Adam Faulkner and Rico Frederick that started as like a weekly series and then became this monthly series that really was about um, like bringing new work about you know people who were writing seriously and didn't have avenues or like a good room to come and bring new work and try it out and all of us are kind of pushed to do new work and that series has been such a like unbelievable life line and um at the start of the pandemic i started teaching my own workshops which are called this workshop called emotional historians that has just like grown into this vast and like I couldn't have imagined kind of community and so so much when I think of those seven years I I think of it as a continuation there's not like a public facing place where anyone anywhere could tune in and be like oh that's how John's building community or that's how Jose is doing that or Aziza right like Mm. but we're all just we're out there still doing that same thing yeah 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 but the podcast format is such a, like, anyone, anywhere can tune in and see the thing that you're doing, as you know, right? Like, anywhere. And so you're, like, yeah, you can, can be tracked in that way. But, you, like, yeah, it can there give, are different ways to invest in community that I think we're all doing, you know? Mm. Yeah, I, I do think often that a podcast gives an outsized sense of one's importance. <laughs> It magnifies you in a bizarre way that does not reflect reality at all. Um, I will say, like, you know, we had fun doing the Poetry Gods. We had a sense that there were people listening. But it was a labor of love. Yeah, you could feel that Like, it was a labor of, like, it wasn't, um, you know, it wasn't paid. It was, like, really this, and, you know, you'd put out a new episode and, some people would tweet at you about it or anything, but I think most people listen to podcasts very privately. Yeah. And I mean, maybe I'm just projecting now. I listen to podcasts like consistently and privately. I don't really engage with the host, so I'm just a silent lurker, it feels like, but they're a part of my life and I'm not a part of theirs. Mm. And so mm. the back and forth was always appreciated, but it wasn't like, I don't think we really were... I think we've been surprised in the years that have followed Mm. at how far that podcast traveled and who was listening and when and where. And uh, because in the moment, we were just like hanging out and hitting record and putting it up (laughs) and just like, 
having fun. Well, there are there are a number of things that you guys said on that show that became like these mantras for me, yourselves and also guests. Mahogany L. Brown was on and she was talking about being a community organizer and an event runner, which is something that I went on to do when I moved back home for a little while. And there was this phrase that she used that became like a little mantra of mine. It's gonna sound so silly, but she said at one point, you gotta shea butter everything. Like you have to take care of yourself to this crazy degree if you are going to be the person who is out there running a room, teaching, you know, bringing community together, you have to like put even more energy into taking care of yourself. And I was like a complete failure at that and I ran myself way into the ground, but I was always thinking about her saying that. One of the things that you said that was a huge help to me was, I think you were talking about a conversation that you had maybe with Aziza as you're walking along and you said, I will never read all the things. Yeah. <laughs> and I still struggle with that today, but like I think about that all the time. So frustrating. Yeah. Did it teach you things? Like, did those conversations sort of... Oh, 100%. Yeah. I mean, hearing what's on Jose and Aziza's mind every week taught me things and really mm. being able and, and feeling kind of challenged by both um, of their, like, intellects and their vulnerability and just how earnest and authentic they were when mm. they would answer what was on their mind. <laughs> I, I remember why I think there was like one episode where Jose was just like talking about how exhausted he was. And I, I just like remember that. Yeah. Um, and, and you know, it's like a moment in time for him, but I remember as a co-host with him just being like, man, he's really like putting himself on the line here. Like we're putting this out and he is just answering this question honestly. Like this is what's on his mind. Mm, mm. <laughs> and I think they, challenged me in, in really productive ways to um, like present myself authentically and to be thoughtful of what I was going to talk about. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I'm trying to remember. I mean, so many of those interviews were just so unbelievably impactful and they gave us this time where, you know, there's not really anything like an interview if you hang out with somebody socially you can't it's, it's weird if you try to interview someone without having it be organized yeah <laughs> sometimes like it can you know but to be able to be like willie perdomo we're gonna ask you all the stuff that we want to know and i think like that interview is one that just like stays with me willie kind of talking about the roots of um his generosity because he's someone who is just so like seamlessly generous and community oriented and building in like small ways. And he's someone who has such a huge, his, whose art has such a huge impact and following that to have like the little things where like I told the story on the podcast when we had Willie of just like, I was just starting out when I met Willie for the first time and was teaching uh, workshops at a syringe exchange, like weekly workshops, and told him about it after he gave like a professional development. And he was just like, cool, what's your address? And just like two days later, his book, Smoking Lovely, arrived in the mail for me and was like, hope this is helpful. Mm. And I just like read it, taught from it, fell in love with his work. But getting to hear him talk about just like, he was like, I grew up and just like, I, I'm going to misquote him here, but it was basically like, if someone's hungry, you feed them. If somebody's like, mm. needs a towel, you dry them. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, like, and having that be just like a guiding pedagogy too, I think was really impactful. It's hard to forget Hanif Abdul-Rakib talking about going oh, to see yeah. Passion of the Christ on a first date. <laughs> that really stayed with me. <laughs> oh my God, yeah, no. I... And Patricia Smith, I mean, our live show with Patricia Smith, it was such a shame because our, we had like five mics set up and four of them malfunctioned and it was just That's... like this, the one like kind of side mic on the side of the room that managed to record so the audio is 
terrible, but the interview was just so incredible. People will listen to any yeah. any audio quality if they want to hear what somebody yeah. has to say, though. Um, yeah. I remembered another thing, and I remember exactly where I was when I heard this. I was walking on the High Line, I remember Aziza said, all I ever have to do is breathe and die. <laughs> and at the time, I was like so, I was like 33. I was so worried about what the fuck I was going to do. I had had no publications. I didn't know what I was going to do with my life in a broader sense. I didn't really have a job. I was just wandering around New York, kind of like being a bit of a fuck up. And, and you know, that phrase just sort of like hit me like a ton of bricks it was just like yeah okay well I don't have to do anything actually um you interviewed a bunch of guests sometimes it was just the three of you and some of those guests have gone on to to do amazing things and I wonder how you how you think about that I mean honestly we felt like those guests were doing amazing things Mm. when we interviewed them so Mm. it wasn't like we were like man we're getting in on the ground floor of Paul Tran or something like that like we (laughs) knew Paul Tran's work and we said oh my god they're amazing like yeah um that's who we want to talk to Mm -hmm. because we know their work you know it wasn't like um an investment okay I mean I'm sure it you know like functions as an investment in somebody's work to just like try to platform them and, and help them talk about their work but it wasn't it's that strategic. It's not surprising. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. it wasn't strategic. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, we had a couple people who were like dream gets for us. Like Tim Siebel's was someone who's like work that we absolutely loved and had all read his books. And so uh, Ziza and I saw him at, I think it was like AWP or something like that. And we're like, can you go be on our podcast over there? And he was cool enough to like do it. And then, you know, that sparked a friendship, which was amazing. But. Mm-hmm. A lot of it too. I mean, those were our peers, so it was really like, uh, you know, like Jean Ann is for Lee is like one of my best friends, or mm. Lauren Whitehead, or Adam. Fa- like it was like, oh, I'll text that person, or Jose would be like, oh, this is my, you know, like it was a lot of personal relationships that we already had, and mm. thinking about like, wouldn't it be cool if we did this? Like there wasn't like a board meeting, <laughs> with no, like no. a chalkboard, <laughs> you know, like. Uh, some of the ones, even like with Willie or Patricia, you know, those are, you know, generational icons in our eyes at mm. the time that we interviewed them and, and obviously still. So, but we had personal relationships with them too. Mm. So it wasn't like we were cold calling them. Mm. We come from a community that is smaller than it seems. And so, um, I think that those like personal relationships kind of shine through in the podcast too, that it doesn't really feel like any of those people are, um, I don't know, we wanted them to feel at home mm. and like just be part of a, the living room and kind of forget the microphone a little bit. Yeah, which which you achieved, absolutely. Um, I think it's one of the... Yeah, it's one of the few shows that I've ever listened to where you actually feel like maybe... Do they actually remember that they're recording, like, <laughs> half the time? I know you can hear, like, a lot of glasses moving around. Yeah, yeah, like there's a lot of background. Chip crunching. <laughs> so, I guess it probably does feel a bit strange to have somebody sitting in front of you interviewing you about this project that was now so long ago and, like, such a, a moment in time. And I did want to ask you about what you think has changed since then for better and maybe even for worse in poetry. What's changed? Uh, or maybe it doesn't feel like anything's changed. Maybe it feels like a continuation. I mean, it kind of feels like things are always changing. Yeah, okay. <laughs> but, mm. but there are still just community power sources there like this we're at a time in American poetry that I think is um really powerful and it's on the backs of decades of work that's been done by organizations that 
and individuals who are not rooted in institutions. And there's so much crossover with institutions, yeah. which I don't think inherently is a bad thing, right? Like a lot of people who come from community backgrounds have institutional backing and that's great. Mm. But when literature is just rooted in the institution, and I wish I could like connect all the dots here, but it feels like it runs the risk of being hyper intellectualized. Mm. It's funded in ways that are so disconnected from the public yeah. that you can make up whatever rubric you want for what success looks like because it's just like so over here. So you can be like, this poem is amazing and nobody knows what it means. <laughs> you know, like nobody knows what it means. And you might love it, but it's like, <laughs> which sounds like talking, I mean, maybe it is talking shit, but like no, no, no. that to, to invest in spaces that aren't rooted in the institution that are rooted in, if not audience generation, then like true community generation where audience is writers and, and like, you know, like we're at a time where we have a lot of poets who have like real audiences and where their poetry is mattering in spaces that uh, are not exclusively poetry spaces and they're not limiting themselves to poetry. I mean, there are people writing across genre and just, you know, organizing across genre too. And so, you know, like that's been true. When I say organizations and individuals, I'm thinking of, you know, the poetry slam and all the good and bad that comes with it. But that's like not an institutional community. I'm thinking of like Cave Canem, which mm. is outside of academia, but invests in you know, writers of the African diaspora, uh, and then I, like Cantamundo and Kuniman and mm. um, all of these like just incredible organizations that are investing in things that are not institutional. And I think the art is reflecting that mm. now. Mm. Yeah. It's not exclusively reflecting that because it's so vast and there's so many people and you can still find all the various kinds of poetry you might want but uh there <laughs> or, are like, or not once is the or case not maybe. Yeah, yeah. i mean depending you yeah. know what i mean like it's really yeah. i know it sounds like a judgment but it's not for me but I, like the poems that feel like they are vital urgent thoughtful nuanced steadfast like those poems are finding a home and academia is making more space for those poems but i think it's making space for those poems because it has to, it's undeniable mm. right mm. now. Um, I'm thinking about this poem and this might be a moment where I'm getting mixed up, so correct me. Did you have Nate Marshall on? We never had Nate Okay, on. where am I getting this from? Um, oh wait, no, 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 Nate was on our live, we did a live show at Burl's Poetry. Yeah, right. Uh, but it wasn't an interview. Okay. Uh, and so Nate did, I think, read at that live show. And maybe did the poem Praise Song? Praise the Hennessy, the Dull Dull Brown. I don't remember, but it doesn't matter. It's very possible. I'm going off I'm going down a rabbit <laughs> hole here. But I'm thinking about these these poems that you're talking about. Um, you know, work work of Aziz's that is shown shown up on the Poetry Foundation side and that's poem Praise Song, which is also there. Um, yeah, that it is it has been really interesting to kind of watch American institutions get a little bit more comfortable with stuff that doesn't look exactly like um, what the Academy might comfortably accept as capital P poetry. I went to a reading the other night at a, a big uni, big university here, and um, the writer who was being interviewed is a really excellent and um, and talented writer but you wouldn't have known it 
from the way that the event was set up, it was just so uncomfortable. And it felt like everybody there was there because they felt like they should be and they wanted to be seen to be at this event. And to this writer's credit, you know, he was not having a bar of it. He was just like, oh yeah, great question. I can't really answer it, you know, that kind of thing. (laughs) Just like not playing into it at all. But it was interesting to kind of like walk into that space just for an evening and go, oh yeah, this is, this is kind of awful, actually. Like, just the organization of it was, or...? Yeah, the... but just the general feeling of, like, um, writing is this rarefied, um, very exclusive thing that is about power and posturing and is, like, very much, you know, to be kept here right. in this um, very fancy well-air-conditioned room. I mean, you know, air conditioning's great. Well, it's also, (laughs) you can set up this argument here and it can be mistaken for anti-intellectualism. Yeah, which I often often run the risk of of doing that. Yeah, so please pull me up. It's not anti-intellectualism. I don't think. I think it can be (laughs) pro-curation and it can be pro-vulnerability and pro- um, intellectualism at the same time. It can be, let's honor this thing that's being written by trying to create a pathway um, in live literature for it to live in the air mm. as best as it was meant to live, as opposed to curating an incredible event for a writer and then have it it just always feels like it's like guided by people's insecurities. Yeah, no, that's, <laughs> like that's, the, that's precisely it. Like the theme it. of the night yeah. is who's most insecure? The yeah. audience, the writer, <laughs> the organizers, and who's going to pay for it? All of us. We're all going to pay for it with our time. Yeah, no, but that's, that's a perfect way to put it. And just a, a general kind of feeling that like, we're all faking it for each other's sake, but no one's enjoying it. No one's gaining anything. We're all bored as hell. So, yeah, I don't know. It was it was good to have that experience and just go, okay, well, this happens everywhere. Um, yeah. I want to still kind of try to tease out this thing of, like, the time that's passed and... Um, the changes that have been gone through. I was mentioning to you that, you know, when I lived here, it was for the four months during the 2016 election. I have a very clear memory of the election night at about 1 a.m. I was still awake and from way down below our apartment, I just heard this woman scream in a way that like, you know, you hear a lot of screaming in New York, but this was not a scream of like, I'm in danger or yeah. like anything. This was a scream. It was a howl. It was like a howl of despair, you know? And I was just like, oh God, I think something horrible has happened. And the next day or the day after I went to Poet's house and I remember this girl in the um, bathroom stall next to mine on the phone and she said, people think I'm exaggerating when I say this is the worst thing that's ever happened, but it is the worst thing that's ever happened. <laughs> it was... It was a, it was a terrifying time. Yeah. Um, and like, I wonder if you have any thoughts at all about like living through that and what it did to the work that you do. I, yeah. Um, I mean, that was an objectively devastating night that comes out of an objectively devastating history. Mm. And so I think there was a level of surprise that um, if like paying attention to the history of the United States of America uh, would make that surprise a little less surprising, like that it was possible and that it was an extension of a force and a white supremacist system in this country that uh, has been watered, nurtured, and is alive and is well. Um, And still devastating to see um, the physical representation of that in the halls of power. And it's not like 
there are no consequences either way. I mean, the, the policies that follow that are devastating. Obviously, Roe versus Wade have been, has been overturned. There, I mean, I could go through the litany of policy reasons why that mm. was absolutely devastating. The poetry communities that I've participated in and that I know in this city and nationally are, you know, like poetics of resistance. And they've been poetics of resistance before um, Donald Trump was elected president, right? And so I do think, you know, there's obviously a lot of energy around all kinds of resistance. And I do think that that... um, fed like a growth and a, and a, like a um, like a hunger in the public for authentic voices to compete against this large and devastating narrative that is in the news and is mm. just like the history mm. of America and so you know but how that exists I think on like the day to day community level um, felt like a continuation of, of things that have already been it was already there. happening yeah. Uh, yeah. and mm-hmm. community building that's already been um, present mm-hmm. uh, and it was necessary then and I feel grateful that there were building blocks there as well I don't want to be like to meet the moment and fix things it's just like it was there as well mm-hmm. these two things were true they yeah. were both happening simultaneously and I'll never forget uh, at I think Araceli Skirmai was our first feature at Super Duper Fresh and it was in April of 2017 and she had been commissioned to write a poem for this anthology that was like Poets of Resistance and she talked about just like how to approach that assignment and how to orient um, her energy around uh, what resistance actually looks like and like where her energy was pointing. And she wrote this poem called You Are Who I Love, which is like iconic at this point. You can find it anywhere on the internet. It's mm-hmm. just like a long litany of, of like detailed people who she loves and like kinds of people and kinds of acts and just like that was resistance in that moment was also just investment in um, spaces that felt loving and nurturing and communal. So it doesn't not make sense to me that we would start that podcast, you know, and continue that podcast from 2016 into 2017 and really um, double down and invest in just like community and love and the things that we had been working for anyway. Mm-hmm. Do you ever feel like you can relax around that sort of stuff? Like, do you ever feel like you have a moment where you're like, actually, no, things are, things are okay. <laughs> I mean, America is a stressful country. <laughs> I mean, I'm a parent of two uh, <laughs> young children and, um, uh, you know, married to and uh, and am a practicing freelancer um uh, in so capitalist not, america so not really i mean with intention mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. i think relaxation you know we can think of relaxation as like my life is relaxing or that was a relaxing month but we live in a series of moments you know and so mm-hmm. there are definitely moments in my life that are characterized by deep breathing and joy and like love and connection mm-hmm. and uh, and relaxation. That feels like a really important ingredient to <laughs> a life if you only get one of them. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's a, sort of a silly question, but I do worry about you guys <laughs> a lot of the time. Um, I mean, it's really yeah. rough. It is a rough <laughs> political system. Try explaining it to a four-year-old where you're like, my four-year-old's gotten like really into like what a king is and what like a, 
you know, there are just like a lot of stories, kids' stories that utilize like kings and queens and princes and princesses. Like we're reading like the Phantom Tollbooth and there are two kings and you're trying to like explain a king. He's like, do we have a king? And you're like, no, we have a government, which let me explain voting because we need like a baseline of what voting is. And our, in our next lesson, we'll explain why it's not actually true here. <laughs> and like, we'll cover the electoral college when you're five. We'll figure this out. And gerrymandering comes when you're like eight. It's very hard to explain to a young child. <laughs> oh my gosh. Wow. Um, well, I just, yeah, it's been a weird kind of like thrill and I don't know, I feel like I'm in a parallel dimension being able to speak to you. Um, will you please send my love to Jose and Aziza? For sure. Next yeah. time you speak to them. And uh, yeah, I mean, you guys, you really, you really got me through like a horrible time, a horrible year. I was so lonely. And, you know, I remember being in this like shitty little gym in the basement of my London apartment, like listening to you guys, listening to Jean and Billy actually. And just being like, it's okay. There are people out there that care about this stuff. Like, it's all right. That episode was incredible. It was the good. The Really episode. Yeah. Yep. Amazing. Thank you for saying that. That's really sweet. No, for real. Yeah. All I have to do is breathe and die. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so that was that was John. Thanks again to Ari Villanueva for putting us in touch. You're the best. Uh, yeah, you really you really made my time in Brooklyn like it, it felt like a lot of full circle moments, and a lot of that was um, was down to you helping me out. So thank you. So I did just want to come back here because, look, when you take five weeks off, um, I, I was pretty ready to, to come back to doing this and to have to build up the audience from scratch again because five weeks is a relatively long time in, in podcast land. And, you know, my, my stats thing, the thing that I use to figure out how many people listen is like, it's giving me less and less information to the point where I know that very soon it's just going to be like, you have to pay to know anything. But like, it's, I know it's got a lot of information in there, but it's giving me, it's like whittling down what it'll say without me paying any money. But what I can glean from the tiny bit of information that I have uh, still available to me is that you're all still there. In fact, I think there might be some more of you um, for me not being around for five weeks. So uh, I'll try not to be offended by that. <laughs> so yeah, I don't know what that means. Maybe I should take um, maybe I should take breaks more often. But yeah, just just thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this strange, inconsistent, uh, occasionally quite over-emotional, overwrought show about poetry. Um, yeah, I've hit some milestones and it's it's really helping me to think about the trajectory of the show and what I want for it. Yeah, it means a hell of a lot. I, I've been to a couple of really wonderful poetry events over the last couple of weeks since I got home and even there, you know, having people come up to me and, and talk to me about things that they've heard and tell me that the show has kept them company when they've needed company. I mean, that's the main thing, right? Like, that's what that's what podcasts are there to do. So that's great. That's really great. I'm so happy for that. Yeah, so just wanted to really uh, try to underscore my gratitude for that. Not good at, at that kind of thing. Not good at accepting compliments and not good at, I don't know, all the, all the emotional side of things but uh yeah I really I know that you're there I notice it and it means a hell of a lot so just before I wrap up I wanted to point to a couple of other things going on in poetry podcast land I was on an episode of verse craft with Matthew Buckley Smith Cameron Clark and our inimitable host Elijah Blumov we were all discussing poems that we wrote 
um, to each other, I guess. They were all on the theme of To My Artist Friends. And uh, the first half of that is out, which has my poem that we discussed towards the end. And I would recommend listening to the next one too, which is going to have Matthew's poem and Cameron's poem on it. Um, I was really nervous and pretty grumpy, actually, on the day that we recorded. <laughs> but uh, I, I think I think it was a really interesting conversation, nevertheless. And yeah, if you want to hear me read and discuss my own work, then head on over there. I also wanted to let everybody know that David, David Matamed down in Hobart, has started sharing Ratbag Poetics, which began as a radio show, as a podcast. So the competition is here for me, and I'm just looking at this list of episodes now. We've got discussion of Evelyn Araluen and Alison Whitaker's work, Gareth Morgan, Autumn Royal, Dom Symes' wonderful book, Lucy Van. I think he's even got, he's got an episode here. Yeah, discussing Ella O'Keefe slowlier and then there's a, and then Duncan Hose is on. It's so sure, like just casually. What the hell, David? No, <laughs> I can't, I can't, I can't deal with competition. This is, <laughs> I'm not happy about this. God damn it. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, go listen to Ratbag Poetics. Fine. Whatever. And yeah, just before I go, I do occasionally get emails from listeners who say, you know, you're always talking about this show, Sleerick. It's like, where should I start? Uh, There are so many episodes, I don't know where to begin. I would say you could do a lot worse than starting with the recent episode called Comeback Bill, episode 123. Yeah, it's just a lovely hour or so of Matthew talking about um, a book that he really likes and you get to hear what a sweetheart he is and how much he knows about poetry which is a fuck of a lot so yeah recommend that recommend Ratbag Poetics <laughs> god damn you David and I recommend that episode of Versecraft with me on it Self-promotion. Can you tell how much I love it? Okay. That's enough. Gotta go. I'm moving out of this office, you guys. I gotta pack up these books and, uh, you know, it's been fun. It's been fucking freezing. There's been rats. No one cleans the bathroom. And, uh, and there's no hot water. But I've loved every minute. And I can't wait to get out of here.